Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This is Addison Peacock, and you're listening to The Wicked Library. Warning. The Wicked Library is a horror fiction podcast created for a mature audience. Our stories contain graphic descriptions of pain, murder, violence, blood, betrayal, and inhumanity. Monsters win, people die, and hope is often shattered. There is also beauty, heart, catharsis, and raw emotion. Fear may be deeply personal, but we all share it. If at any time a story takes you to a place too dark, turn on the lights, press pause, or press stop. And always remember that unlike in the real world, these nightmares and your participation in them are under your control. Today's episode of the Wicked Library is again brought to you in part by our friends over at Best Fiends, who, as you may already know, make my favorite puzzle game. Since you're a fan of the Wicked Library, I know you love a good story, and that's one of the things that sets this game apart from other match-three-style games. It has a great story element. I really like that Best Fiends takes a new approach that makes it not only engaging and wicked good fun, but also absolutely the best of its kind. If you're not familiar with Best Fiends yet, it starts out with your fiends as baby versions of themselves. But as you play, more fiends join your team, and they grow more powerful. This keeps the game fresh and fun and allows you to solve more wickedly challenging puzzles as you move forward. Because there is fresh content added all the time, it keeps you thinking and entertained with new adventures. Personally, I enjoy playing it when I'm waiting for appointments. It also gives me the quick break I need when I'm mixing and editing together episodes of the show. Whenever you're bored or stressed out, Best Fiends helps make sure that you're not. While you'll have so much fun playing it, you'll forget you're not a kid again. Just like our show, it is made for adults. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Welcome, dear listeners, to Season 11, Episode 4 of The Wicked Library. I'm your host for the episode, Graham Rowett. Some of you may know my voice work from this program, along with Victoria's Lift and The Private Collector. You may also have heard me on the No Sleep podcast, The Grey Rooms, or the SCP Archives. I love spending time in The Wicked Library. In high school, I had a job shelving books at the local public library, so I feel quite at home amongst the dark and dusty tomes here. Of course, the books I shelved didn't leak strange fluids and emit pitiful wails when I put them in their spot, but we were all younger then, right? These days, I love nothing more than taking down a hissing volume to see what fantastic story I get to share with you. And speaking of you, thank you to all of our listeners who are currently supporting the Wicked Library on Patreon. If you're not yet a supporter, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. A lot of hard work and money goes into making this show, and we really do rely on your support to help us pay the authors, voice actors, composer, and artists. For as little as $3 a month, you can help bring our nightmares to life. Plus, you get fun rewards like ad-free episodes at higher bit rates, access to bonus stories, 
and at higher levels of support, even more. So why not slide on over to patreon.com forward slash wicked library and consider adding some fuel to our deadly fires. This season, we're devoting our adventures to the digital dread of sci-fi horror. What I enjoy about horror in general is seeing regular people put into extreme situations. What I love about science fiction horror is the fact that we look to the future hoping for a better tomorrow, but these stories show us that new technologies often come with new ways to make terrible, deadly mistakes. Which leads us to this week's story. Zero Alpha, from returning author Barbara Jean Savoie. Who we are is shaped by our memories and experiences and our choices. But what if we lost those memories? What if someone stole them from us and left a yawning hole we couldn't access in their place? Who would we be then, without the sum of our experiences? One woman is about to find out in today's Wicked Tale, performed by the wonderful Sarah Ruth Thomas, with a custom score by the infamous Nico Vitese. More information about all our amazing collaborators can be found on the Wicked Library website. And now, please enjoy Zero Alpha. exists where my memory should be. Or, not a hole, but a great yawning chasm. A void, perhaps, devoid of color and sound. An endless vacuum bereft of sun or moon or stars. And how is it I remember galaxies when my own name escapes me? In all the months since I awoke in this place... I have been shuffled without ceremony from one austere windowless room to the next. In all that time, I've had no occasion to gaze upon the heavens. And so, how is it I can recall the night sky? How is it I can picture constellations, recite their stories? But I cannot do the same of myself. I sit in a room empty of everything except a stainless steel table and the chair I currently occupy. Scattered across the table are bits of wire, solemn plastic, circuitry, and soldered metal. Above me, lights set into the unfinished ceiling make a sound that tickles at my spine, buzzing like a colony of angry hornets nesting in the spaces between each vertebra. I look up. Standing over me is the doctor. The doctor carries her tablet. Something I have begun to think is as much a part of her as her ice-blue eyes. She opens her mouth and sound cuts through the silence. Scalpel sharp. Stabbing. Slicing. Flaying. I flinch. Try as I might. I'm unable to translate. Her words have no meaning beyond pain. The doctor frowns. She does not offer more. 
vocal or otherwise. Not that I expect anything from her. Since waking, I've been subjected to many tests. Some like the one on the table, but others too. Tests measuring what I can only guess at. Coordination, endurance, agility, cognition, intuition. Not once have I been offered direction. The doctor simply observes me as I struggle, scribbling notes onto her tablet until the test is complete. Looking at the table, I count the pieces. In my head, I sort them, arranging them in neat rows and columns. In this mental space, I analyze them, observing size, shape, composition. I know the answer. I know, without knowing how I know, that the pieces on the table are parts of a whole. A whole which, when fully assembled, becomes a complicated electronic component. I reach for the component's purpose. It's there. Right there. But like a frightened animal, it skitters away. Right into the hole where my memory should be. I look at the doctor, but aside from her severe frown, her face shows no sign of emotion. She stands so still, so steady, that she could be made from wax. Something flashes across my vision, displacing the three-dimensional image of the completed component spinning lazily in my mind's eye. A memory? What could have triggered it? I look at the doctor. I note the downward slope of her lips, her inscrutable stare. She doesn't move, not to sway, not to fidget, looking for all the world like a figure in a wax museum. This time, as the memory flashes, I try to catch hold of it, except there's no substance to grasp onto, and instead, I tumble through it. I fall. I fall and I fall and I fall until the world rocks around me. I stumble into the memory, dazed but unhurt. I find myself in a large room, dimly lit and densely populated by figures that appear to be frozen in time. Not the doctor or the other doctors. None of these figures wears the distinctive long white coat. People. Regular people. Like me. Except, there's something not quite right about them. It's in their faces. Nothing glimmers from behind their bright glassy eyes. No intelligence. No emotion. No nuance to their rigid expressions. The skin stretched over their skulls is too glossy, too sculpted, too excessively perfect. Hair of various shades, textures, and thickness falls just so, not a strand out of place. Wax figures. Sound assaults my ears, and when I turn to see where it's coming from, the ground disappears from beneath my feet. This time, when I land, I am in the empty steel room, sitting at the table with the pieces of the electronic components spread out before me, untouched. The doctor's frown deepens. The corner of her eye twitches, hinting at impatience. My eyes shift through the mess on the table, unable to find any of the necessary tools. Screwdriver, 
I say, or try to, my lips and teeth and tongue forming what I believe to be the right shapes. But the sound that emerges is wrong, dreadful and harsh, grinding at the small, fragile bones of my fingers, and both the doctor and I wince in pain. I press my lips into a thin line and arrange my hands as if holding the handle of a screwdriver, rolling my wrist to the right again and again as I pantomime turning a screw. Subtle satisfaction flashes through the doctor's eyes, so fast it wouldn't have registered if I weren't looking for it. The doctor reaches into the pocket of her long white coat and produces a multi-tool. She places it at the edge of the table, just out of my reach, and scribbles on her tablet with her stylus. I reach for the multi-tool and begin. By my internal clock, because there are no timepieces here, or none that I have access to, it takes me just over an hour to craft the component. It looks just as it had in my mind's eye, but even as I study the object in my hand, I cannot fathom its purpose. Could I have been some sort of computer scientist in my former life? Or an engineer? How else could I have constructed such a thing on instinct alone? I put the component on the table and rest my hands in my lap. Test complete. The doctor approaches, looking between me and the component, and scrawls another line of notes. She picks it up and peers at it, squinting her ice-blue eyes. Her expression doesn't change, but I sense some of that earlier satisfaction as she secrets the component into one of her pockets in her coat and turns on her heel, striding toward the single steel door set into a thick steel wall. When I remain in my chair, the doctor half turns to say something over her shoulder. I cannot understand the words, but the tone of her voice is harsh, pricking at my skin like the thorny stem of a rose in full bloom. I flinch, hiding my reaction by pushing myself away from the table. I hurry to catch up with the doctor as she inputs a code into the keypad beside the door. The door slides open with a quiet rush of air, and the doctor breezes through it. I follow at her heels, watching the flap of her white coat as it snaps behind her, ducking my head to avoid the stares of the other doctors. They speak in hushed tones, their voices like static humming across my skin. The doctor doesn't stop to greet the other doctors, ignoring their raised hands in favor of leading me to my next destination, the lab. I allow my lips to thin into a line as a complicated knot forms behind my ribcage. Another exam? So soon after the last one? Did I do something wrong during the test? I only realize that I've stopped just before the threshold when the doctor beckons me into the lab with an impatient wave of her hand. I hesitate, forcing my stiff and unyielding limbs to carry me into the large white-on-steel room past the blinking terminals, boxy equipment, and gleaming instruments, to a surgical table. Without prompting, I climb onto the table and lie on my back. Restraints snake out of the table and clamp around my wrists and ankles. The doctor approaches with a syringe. She jabs it into my arm where the muscle is still sore from the last injection, and I swallow an unhappy noise, 
knowing from experience that the doctor will only ignore it. Ice flows from that single point of pain, numbing it, numbing everything, until the edges of my vision turn to haze. It's only as I lose consciousness that I recognize the twisted, knotted thing tangled in the cage of my ribs. Fear. When I open my eyes, I am in the small concrete box of my cell, lying on the cold steel table that serves as my bed. My arms burn, the skin irritated by the adhesive of the sensors that monitor me during the night. I stare at the unfinished guts of the ceiling, willing myself back to sleep. Tomorrow, the doctor will see that I was awake and there will be more tests. There will be syringes full of ice and more burning sensors until the doctor can determine the cause. What was the cause? A dream? Each night, I dream, but like my memories, they disappear upon waking. Sometimes I'm left with fragments, sometimes only a riot of color and incomprehensible sound. But no matter the dream, I always wake with the same desperate, futile hope. Like chasing a mirage in a vast, empty desert, I reach out, my hands grasping, clutching at the shimmering pool of my dreams. And always, when I open my clenched fists, my palms are embedded with nothing but grains of burning sand. First stars, and now deserts. Concepts I shouldn't know, but which live within me as more than abstract thought. Places I must have gone, things I must have seen, like the room with the wax figures. Who was I before I came to this place? And, far more importantly, why do I stay? When I first awoke in this place, frightened and alone, unable to communicate, a crater-sized hole where my memory should be, I thought something must be wrong with me. I thought the doctor was here to help me, fix me. It's clear now that she only ever meant to further her own goals, her own agenda, whatever that might be. There's nothing for me here. Nothing except endless experimentation, confusion, and pain. So why stay? Why not leave? I want to see the desert firsthand. I want to tip my head back and gaze at the stars winking in the night sky. Perhaps then, beneath the benediction of the cosmos, my memories will return. I sit up, ripping the sensors from my right arm and then the left. I swing my legs off the table, my bare feet registering the cold of the steel floor. My shoes are gone taken by the other doctor who cleans and dresses me at the beginning and end of each day. It's only two paces to the door, and I stop short, hit with the sudden realization that the keypad is on the other side of the wall. Locked in. The hopeful thing fluttering inside me hardens and crumbles into dust. I lean forward, resting my forehead against the steel door, my hand splayed across the unforgiving brushed metal beside my face. I push against it, willing it to open, when a gentle buzzing current runs through my palm into the door. 
The door opens with a soft sigh. But how? The door begins to slide closed, and I dash through it before it can lock me inside again. The hall outside my cell is deserted, the lights dimmed, but not dark. I wait, listening for the rhythmic drumming of footsteps, but the hall is empty. Now what? In all my time here, I've never been without an escort. I've never been given free reign to learn and explore the labyrinthine depths of my prison. In my mind's eye, I can trace the path to my left back to the lab, and I instinctively shy away from going that direction. I turn to the right, the path in my mind's eye drawing blank. Either I have never come from this direction, or I cannot remember doing so, perhaps having been dragged unconscious from one of the doctor's procedures. I shake my head, dislodging the image of the doctor and her syringe, ignoring the twisting feeling somewhere in my middle, something like fear but more insidious. Anxiety? I take one halting step, followed by another and another, heading for the steel door at the end of the hallway. Just as I had in my cell, I place my hand on the cold metal and push the current buzzes stronger this time, stinging the tips of my fingers and making the long, dark strands of my hair stand on end. The door slides open. I cross the threshold and scan this new hallway, committing it to memory, adding it to the model of the prison I have built within my mind's eye. The steel floor is the same, but the walls are different, softer somehow. I brush my fingertips over the raised ridges of the painted surface, registering cool, but not cold. Neither metal nor concrete, but something else. A door stands near the center of the hallway, but instead of the usual slab of steel, this door is light brown and slender, constructed not of metal or plastic, but something that tickles the edge of my memory. Wood! Set into the wall beside the wooden door is an observation window, similar to those installed in some of the larger testing chambers. Instead of an opaque, shadowy gray, however, this window is clear, transparent. I creep forward, straining my ears, but there's nothing aside from the stick-unstick of my bare feet on steel and the faint breath of recycled air whispering in the vents above me. I approach the door, pressing my back against the glossy wood. I lean, shifting closer, until I can peer through the window. A man dressed in all black sits before a bank of terminal screens. Each of the flat, clear panels appears to blink at regular intervals, switching between various images of empty rooms and hallways. The man's mousy-haired head is tilted back, his eyes closed and his mouth open, as a little holographic man stands above the dark screen of the tablet resting on his lap. The little man swings a long object and, through the door, I hear a sharp sound that resonates deep within the pulp of my molars. I wince as the little man dashes away. A sound like a rushing waterfall fills the little room, but the man pays the hologram no attention. Sound asleep. 
I tear my eyes away, staring instead at the screens. I recognize most of the images, but not all. On one of the panels, the slender figure of one of the other doctors moves, striding through a hallway with her face buried in the screen of her tablet. Fear's icy fingers trail down my back, gripping the base of my spine with glacial claws. The images aren't static. Video. Fed live from unseen cameras hidden within the exposed guts of the unfinished ceiling, broadcasting my escape. The screens blip as the camera feeds change, and there, at the top left corner, is my cell. Empty. And there, on the screen just right of center, a petite figure stands with her back pressed against a door in an otherwise empty hallway, staring into a large observation window. Move. I have to move. I can't stay here, where the man in black might wake and catch me standing outside his window. Should I turn back? If the man wakes, he'll see the feed of my empty cell, or spot me on one of the cameras. He'll call the doctor, and she'll march me into the lab, strap me to the surgical table, and never let me go. But what if the man doesn't wake? I can't go back. Not when I've come this far. I peel myself away from the door and crouch beneath the sill of the observation window, crawling on my hands and knees until I'm clear. Then, fighting the urge to sprint, I stagger to my feet and continue down the long hallway until it bends into a corner. Peeking around the corner, the hallway continues. To my left is a set of wooden doors, as I approach, my attention is caught by a screen built into the door on the right, covered in text. At the top of the screen, in a white sans serif font, are the words, Overnight Room. Beneath Overnight Room are two more words, On Call. D.R. Sutton and D.R. Chase are listed below On Call, again in white, but in small block letters written in orange at an odd 36-degree upward slant is Lights Out. Toward the bottom of the screen, in all lowercase, the letters jagged and sharp, is Crash at Your Own Risk. Beside the text is a symbol, two parallel vertical lines with a horizontal line beneath. Connected to the horizontal line is a U-shape pointing down. A face, two eyes and a mouth with a tongue lolling out of it. Something about the symbol is familiar, though I can't say for certain whether I've encountered it before. Neither can I stay to examine it, not the symbol nor the hole where my memory should be. Placing my hand on the glossy wood of the door, I push. The current zings through my fingers, but the door doesn't open. I look at the door again, noting the steel protruding from the wood, each narrow bar bent at a 90-degree angle. Handles. Power source. Manual. I grasp one of the handles and push, finding resistance. I try pulling the handle, and the door swings toward me. The darkened room beyond is similar to the lab, 
if the lab were emptied of all the doctor's equipment. Instead, row upon row of long rectangular objects occupies this room. Some of the objects are flat, neatly wrapped in swaths of fabric, while others appear to hold large, lumpy masses. The floor is different, too. Navy blue instead of silver. I tow the floor where it meets the threshold and find the usual unforgiving steel has been covered with a thin layer of something soft. Carpet. I look up, examining the room with my mind's eye, where I can adjust my sight to better see in the dark. Beds. Not like the steel table in my cell. Beds with steel frames and inches of cushion. Mattresses. Beds made up with I grasp for the word. Blankets. Beds where a number of the other doctors lie sleeping. I fall back several paces until my back slams into the wall behind me, waiting for one of the other doctors to raise the alarm. When nothing happens, I scurry to the end of the hall to the next wooden door, easing it open and slipping through to the other side. Carpet beneath my feet. A glass cage in the center of a large open room. Inside the cage sits a long wooden table with twelve high-backed chairs tucked close. Set into the table are several small terminals and, analyzing them with my mind's eye, I can extrapolate that the glass of the cage is not glass at all, but floor-to-ceiling terminal screens upon which multiple users can share and collaborate. Beyond the cage... Evenly spaced along the perimeter of the room are doors, eight in total. Closed, constructed of wood, with text etched into the surfaces at eye height. The closest door to my right reads, D.R. Chase, a word I recognize from the overnight room, a word related to on call and lights out. The door to my left reads, D.R. Sterling. This word is unfamiliar, yet similar to D.R. Chase and D.R. Sutton. Possibly unrelated to concepts like crash at your own risk or smiling tongue faces, however, since it was not listed on the door of the overnight room with the others. What next? Could the exit be behind one of these doors? But which one? I try the handle of the door labeled D.R. Sterling and it opens with no resistance. The room beyond is dark, but before I can switch to the low-light vision within my mind's eye, an unfamiliar sound sends me skittering inside. I crash into the sharp edge of something solid, bruising my hip on the corner, sending a dark square tumbling onto the carpet. Feeling my way around, I come across a tall object, irregularly shaped, soft and yielding beneath my hands. A high-backed chair, like the ones in the cage. Rolling the chair out of the way, I climb into the hollow space beneath the... table? No, desk! And tuck myself into a small ball, hiding my face in the bony caps of my knees and squeezing my eyes shut tight. Something soft and rhythmic pricks at my ears. Footsteps? Muffled by the carpet? The sound grows louder and louder still, approaching my hiding place when it stops. A different sound breaks the silence. 
a voice as smooth as sea glass and deeply rich, like something I can't quite place, something that makes my mouth strangely wet, and I freeze. But instead of dragging me from beneath the desk, the voice does something pleasant, something that pulls at the corners of my lips, and the sound from before repeats as the door closes, leaving me in a dark as deep as obsidian. I wait several minutes, barely daring to lift my head, but the footsteps move on, and with another sound that strikes me like the bone-crushing swing of a hammer, the wooden door leading into the hallway swinging carelessly closed, they disappear. The room takes on a green hue as I switch to low-light vision. I crawl out of my hiding place, the meat of my palm catching on the square object that had fallen onto the carpet. Sitting on my heels, I pick it up and turn it around, examining it from all angles. The object measures approximately 8 inches long by 8 inches wide, with a height of approximately 0.5 inches. The housing of the object is constructed of medium-density polysolumethylene, recyclable hard plastic known for its shock and drop resistance properties. The top of the object is reflective, and when my fingers brush a smooth panel on the side, the object boots up. The shining three-dimensional image is of three figures, each facing away from me. The figures stand close to one another, so close it almost seems as if they plan to disappear into one another. Arms wrap around shoulders and torsos and, in one case, a figure hooks a leg around the leg of the person beside them. I turn the hollow frame around and nearly toss it across the room. The doctor, her lips twisted in something I've never seen before, a smile. Her eyes are scrunched together and would almost appear closed were it not for the warm gray glint of her irises, the color of a sated storm cloud after a mild spring shower. She leans forward, held upright by the two women on either side of her, and after a moment, it dawns on me that the doctor is laughing. I'm falling again. I fall farther and faster than before, my hair whipping around my face, my arms and legs desperate for purchase, until I land with bone-jarring clarity in the wax museum. In my memory, I walk amidst the statues, stopping to examine the face of one or the clothing of another. As I approach the exit, I hear voices and my lips turn up in a smile. Following the voices, I am greeted by four dazzling smiles. One of the smiling people waves to me, and I quicken my step until another smiling person pulls me in to stand beside them, their arms circling my middle from behind. It should be strange being touched like this, but in my memory, I lean into the contact tilting my head to rest my temple on the person's shoulder. After a riot of movement and voices speaking over one another, everything is still for one perfect moment. Light bursts as a small drone circles us, capturing the hollow photo. The hollow drone returns to its port on the wrist of the woman who first waved to me, 
and the group breaks rank to crowd around her outstretched wrist, chattering over one another, touching, smiling, and laughing as they examine the shining image. A tingling sensation holds me back from the rest of the group, and as I raise my arm to scrutinize the silicone band circling my wrist, a small panel set into a decorative sterling silver frame comes to life. The person on the screen is older, with wispy gray hair, a scruffy beard, and watery green eyes. He says something, his features wobbling, his expression verging on collapse. Another person squeezes into the frame, her hair similarly gray, but twisted in a thick braid that sits on her shoulder and ends at her waist. Clear liquid falls from sparse lashes to trail down her grooved face, and the sight of it makes something in my chest constrict. I fall out of the memory into inky darkness, lit only by the rainbow glow of the hollow photo. What was that? Who were those people? And why do I feel like I'm on my way to the lab, heavy with fear and dread? I stand and place the hollow frame on the desk, careful not to look at the doctor. As eager as I am to fill the hole where my memory should be, I can't afford to waste precious time. I bring up the layout of the prison in my mind's eye. If all the doors in the large room lead to smaller rooms, offices, like this one, as I suspect they do, I'll need to double back and head in the opposite direction, towards the lab. Retracing my steps and trying every door and hallway could take hours. Hours which, by my internal clock, I do not have. Before long, the other doctor with the sandy hair will come to my cell to remove the sensors, clean me, and dress me in a fresh white jumpsuit and thin-soled shoes. And conceivably, before that time, the other doctors in the overnight room will have awakened, as will the man in black. I need to fill the gaps in my internal map before I venture forward. But how? Part of the assembly of the doctor's desk is an extra-wide, curved terminal screen. But how to wake it without voice commands? I look through the desk drawers and the cabinets lining the back wall, only to find a scattering of electronics, an unopened saloon blister pack of styluses, and a tangle of wire. The doctor must have taken her tablet with her. Returning to the desk, I run my fingers over the surface, pushing as I had with the door. Blue light flares, forming a holographic array of letters, numbers, and symbols. The graphic user interface bleeds into existence across the screen, filling the transparent panel with a deep blue. White text in a familiar sans-serif font sits in the middle of the screen. Welcome, D.R. Sterling. That word again. D.R. Sterling. Something clicks in the back of my mind, and I stare hard at the vertical lines and rounded curves of the D and the R, willing the meaning to come to me. D.R. Doctor. Dr. Sterling. My lips thin into a line. The doctor has a name. D. 
Do I? I must, mustn't I? A name lost, buried in the hole with the rest of my memories. I don't have time to wonder what it might have been, so I turn my attention to the icon beneath the doctor's name. Thin lines swirl inside a small oval, requesting biometric input in the absence of vocal verification. I spread my hands over the holographic keys and close my eyes, pushing my will into the terminal. Let me in. Static stabs at my fingers. I jerk my hands away from the keys, hugging them to my chest. The shock had come with an impression. Nothing audible or visual, nothing in any language known or unknown to me, but an impression as clear to me as my own thoughts. Not an attack, but a warning. I place my tender hands on the keys again and, instead of pushing my will onto the terminal, instead of trying to brute force my way in, I send an impression of my own. Please, let me through. The screen winks from steady blue and white as the operating system bypasses the biometric security request. At the center of the screen now sits a vector of a hollow half-circle with a simplistic rendering of circuits growing out of the bowl, like wild sunflowers. The same image that can be found on almost all of the equipment in the lab. Hands still on the keys, I send another impression into the terminal. Show me what I need to see. Files populate, filling the width of the screen, the tiles overlapping like playing cards. I lift my hand to sort through them, to search for a map of some kind, when I hesitate. The pad of my finger hovers over an image of an unsmiling person, with blank hazel eyes and long, dark hair. Is that... me? Are these my files? I don't have time to read through them. Not if I want to escape. But I can't look away. Android Zero Alpha, the file says. First of its kind. What? After initial repeated failures at Project's launch... Subject continues to ambulate unhindered, the file continues. However, subject remains slow to understand even the most basic instructions. Root cause unknown. Possibly stems from a disconnect between audio receptors and sensory processor, though engineers are at a loss to explain the malfunction. Speech is garbled, unintelligible, see above. Otherwise, the body remains healthy. Cell growth continues to be stable, with no apparent sign of decomposition. Vitals are consistently within acceptable, if not optimal, ranges, as outlined below. I skim over the complicated numbers, acronyms, and jargon. Deadline is fast approaching. The notes continue near the bottom, almost like an afterthought. Engineers are working around the clock to perfect Zero Alpha. Still, I may have to bring Jackson a bottle of that rubbing alcohol he likes so much and grovel for an extension. 
These military guys know jack about the delicate ballet of science, thinking they can just march through it double time. We'll have Zero Alpha online, but only when the project is good and ready. We don't want a repeat of. The floor drops from beneath my feet, but instead of falling into a memory, I stand there, shaking, shivering, teeth clattering. My name is Zero Alpha. I am an android, a synthetic human, created in a laboratory. Here, in the doctor's laboratory, inside this prison. This is where I belong. This is where I have always belonged. Not human. Not human. Something raw tries to claw its way up my throat, but I place my hands over my mouth to force it back inside. I want to throw the doctor's chair at the wall. I want to tear her desk apart piece by piece. I want to smash my fist through her terminal and shatter the screen under the heels of my bare feet. Instead, I drag my finger to the corner of the screen and power off the device. The files, my files, fade into nothing. I duck out of the doctor's office and into the hallway, passing the overnight room. I skirt around the observation window of the room with the camera feeds, through which the man in black continues to doze. Once inside my cell, I climb onto the table and reapply the sensors. I lie back and close my eyes. But I don't sleep. I may never sleep again. Days pass, and I subject myself to testing. But my body feels heavy, slow, like my jumpsuit has been fitted with weights. It takes longer for my brain to catch up with the doctor's demands. Completing simple tasks becomes a challenge. At first, the doctor tries to hide her frustration behind her usual frown. Now, as I sit at another table, failing again to decipher her commands, her pale face is stained a mottled pink. She holds her stylus in her fist, her grip so tight that the device bends threatening to snap. The doctor says something, her voice sharp like jagged slivers of glass. Again, I stare at her, unwilling to climb out of myself, unwilling to emerge from the space I've carved for myself within my mind's eye, where I can watch the world at a safe distance, where I can be heavy and numb and vacant. The doctor's eyes flash. She crosses the room and grabs a fistful of my jumpsuit. She drags me from the table and leads me stumbling to the door. She inputs the code, and I retreat further into myself. Our destination clear. The lab. I dream. I dream, and this time, I remember. I sit on the edge of a bed the thick foam of the mattress soft yet firm beneath the crisscross of my legs. The bed is unmade. The simple sky-blue sheets and violent comforter hanging over the side of the bed, bunched and wrinkled, are long past due for a wash. In my hands, 
I hold a small orange bottle with a white cap. I roll the bottle between my palms, and the tablets within rattle like the loose sun-bleached teeth of a weather-stripped skull. Nestled between my legs is a large bottle with an elongated neck, the dark glass warm where it touches my skin. Holding tight to the orange bottle with one hand, I bring the glass bottle to my face and pour the liquid contents into my open mouth, where it bursts, sour, sharp, fragrant, across my tongue. I swallow, and warmth blooms within me, a strange sort of golden heat, like the glow of an open flame. But the liquid can't warm all of me, not for lack of trying. The bottle is nearly empty and I am still cold. Cold and empty and barren. With shaking hands, I wrestle with the cap on the orange bottle. When I wake, my hands are still shaking. I sit up, staring at them, remembering the shape of the orange bottle, the warmth of the glass, the explosion of flavor across my tongue. The weight of my decision if not the decision itself. I remember the cold gray nothingness, so familiar, so nearly identical to the thick woolen cocoon I've wrapped myself in since learning my true nature. I must have felt this way before, helpless, hopeless, sitting on an unmade bed in a place so unlike this prison, so other, that it must exist outside this domain of concrete and steel. Which means I must have existed outside too. Not created in the lab, but taken, stolen. My body altered without my permission. My memories erased. I took matters into my own hands then. Why not take matters into my own hands now? The cold and the gray burn away, replaced by something white-hot, glittering and bright. I rip the sensors from my skin and hop off the table to stalk to the door. I will escape from this place, but first, I will find the doctor and make her pay for what she's done to me. I ask the door to open, and the heavy steel retreats, disappearing into the recess in the wall. As before, the lights in the hall are dimmed. Consulting my internal clock, I note that there are only 2.76 hours until the day shift is due to begin. Not much time, but I don't plan to waste any of it. I turn in the direction of the lab when a sound comes from behind me. Whirling around, I see nothing, no one. The door at the other end of the hall, however, is open. I wait, my whole body coiled, tense, but nothing happens. Nothing except the door sliding closed, managing only a handful of inches, and opening again. A message. This way. Trailing my hand along the steel wall, I send an impression of gratitude. The zing of electricity in playful response makes the pads in my fingers tingle. I cross through the open door and walk down the hall, 
passing the observation window. A different man, dressed in the same black uniform, is bent over one of the screens, examining the half-circle and circuitry logo now bouncing across the panels, seemingly at random. He slaps the side of the screen, but it does nothing to reconnect the camera feed. I round the corner at the end of the hall, continuing on to the next, imagining the doctor sitting in her office after hours. Good old Dr. Sterling, filling file after file with her notes, devising tests and experiments. Do her eyes ever wander to the hollow photo on her desk? Does she ever consider that I might have had happiness like that once, too? Would that have mattered when she stole me from my life and turned me into this thing? The white-hot something inside me flares, burning ever brighter. My focus narrows to a single point, the door at the end of the hallway. I almost can't remember moving, only the jolting, rocking sensation of my legs marching my body forward and the cold burn of steel against the bare soles of my feet. A flash of color in the corner of my vision breaks through the blaze of fury, calling me back to myself, and I stop as the screen on the door of the overnight room flashes again, the small square filling with bright pink, blue, and orange. A malfunction? But no. As soon as I turn my attention to the screen, the flashing stops. Another message. I step closer. The same colorful text decorates the display, but some of the white text has changed. Two names have replaced Dr. Sutton and Dr. Chase beneath On Call. To the right of the first name, Dr. Monroe, is a note written in neon green. Just kidding. He caught the bug that's been going around. The second name stands alone, Dr. Sterling. She's here. Right here, so close I can almost feel her presence on the other side of the door. My lips curl in a terrible facsimile of a smile, like drought-dry wildflowers caught in a slow, crackling spread of a brush fire, and I stroke the tablet with the tips of my fingers, giving it a brief kiss of static. Grasping the door's handle, I pull, inch by meticulous inch, until the opening is just wide enough to slip through. I enter, closing the door behind me, drowning the room in darkness. The switch to low-light vision is immediate. I scan the room, noting empty bed after empty bed. In fact, only one bed appears to be occupied. The doctor's halo of platinum hair is almost lost in the green hue of my mind's eye but the figure resting on the thin mattress of the bed along the far wall is unmistakable. She lies on her side, her body curled like a question mark beneath her blanket, her face pressed into the firm foam of her pillow, her usual severe expression gone soft and slack, peaceful. What right does she have to experience such peace, such comfort, when every night I am locked away in my cell with nothing but cold steel to console me. Something ugly crawls into the heart of the incandescent thing burning at my core. My vision flares white in the ensuing eruption, 
my body flooding with a molten river of rage and hate. When my sight clears, I am on top of the doctor, straddling her middle, my hands wrapped around her neck. The doctor's legs thrash beneath the tangle of her blanket, kicking at the wall, the mattress, the empty air. Her hands pull at my wrists, her nails clawing at my skin. Her mouth is open, but no sound escapes. Moisture leaks from the corners of her ice-blue eyes to roll down her temples and disappear into the line of her hair. The doctor's face darkens in the green hue of my mind's eye, her pale skin blotchy, mottled. Her hands release my wrists to slap at me before clutching the thin polyester of my sleep uniform. Her fingers dig and twist in the fabric, grasping and releasing, grasping and releasing, until the thrashing of her legs slows and her eyes bulge from their sockets. The doctor's hands fall, disappearing beneath the foam of her pillow. I press the doctor into the mattress with all my weight, with all my single-minded, righteous purpose. I register the shock before the pain. Electricity courses through me, not the sweet zing of communication, not the gentle buzzing of an impression, but an all-encompassing, all-consuming agony. My body locks in place, helpless under the onslaught. I can only watch as the doctor hacks and coughs, as she pushes herself up while holding the tip of the black baton to my side. For a moment, she looks at me with something like confusion swimming in her bloodshot eyes, until the current flowing through the baton fizzles and dies. I slump, still straddling her legs, muscles twitching and jumping beneath my skin as the doctor's eyes go wide with fear. She jabs the baton at me again and again. Nothing happens. The doctor makes a noise like the howl of wind through the skeletal branches of a long-dead forest. She rears back and slams the baton into me, throwing me backwards. I land in a heap on the floor, the acrylic fibers of the carpet rough where they scratch against my face. The doctor scrambles off the bed and stumbles, the fabric of her blanket twisted around her legs. She catches herself, rips the blankets from her, and sprints for the doors. At first, my body refuses to cooperate. I feel like the baton, now lying forgotten on the carpet beside me. Drained. Useless. I plant my hands against the floor and push myself up. But my arms shake and I collapse onto the floor. I try again and manage to bring myself to my hands and knees. Holding onto a steel bed frame, I haul myself up just as the doctor disappears through the double doors. I make an angry, anguish sound, like the grinding, scraping sound of a terminal pushed beyond its limits. With a strength I didn't know I possessed, I send the nearest bed flying across the room. It lands with a horrible explosion of sound, but I grit my teeth and stalk toward the exit, clearing the way of steel and polyester and foam with an almost perverse glee. I slam into the doors, pain shooting up my arms as the wood rattles in its frame, but holds firm. I push again to no avail. Locked. I take a step back, scanning the doors, looking for weakness in their structural integrity. 
Both doors appear to be hollow, but sturdy, opening outward on hidden hinges. But there, the locking mechanism, more formality than a functional measure of security, latching only one door to the other and nothing else. With a vicious kick to the seam of the two doors, the lock shatters and both doors sail open. I step into the dim light of the hallway, movement catching the edge of my vision. The doctor, slipping through the door at the end of the hall. I grin. The doctor will have nowhere to go but her office. Nowhere to hide. As I approach the door, a hideous shrieking sound rends the air, bouncing and echoing off the walls, the floor, the unfinished ceiling. I fall to my knees with my hands covering my ears, but it's no use. The sound burrows its way inside me, lodging itself inside skin and bone and sinew. Alarm, my addled mind supplies. An alarm. Not long now. Others will be coming. Move. Have to move. Have to go now. I could turn back. Forget my pain and my rage. Turn my back on the doctor and try to evade capture. Leave this place and never look back. But I won't. Grimacing against the pain, I crawl to the door and grasp for the handle. It opens, unlocked, and I tumble across the threshold. The door slams behind me and, though the alarm continues to blare, the sound is quieter here, muffled. I allow relief to wash over me, but only for a second. I whirl around to face the doctor in her office, but the wooden door has been replaced with a thick sheet of metal. All of the offices along the perimeter of the room are protected by identical sheets of metal, blast doors. The alarm must have triggered them, turning each of the offices into private panic rooms. No matter. I place my hand on the smooth surface of the metal covering the door to the doctor's office. Please, let me in, I send. But, like a comet, the message burns up upon entry. I push, demanding now. Let me in! Nothing. The rage smoldering inside me glows brighter, the spark reignited. But before I can smash my fist through the cage of terminal screens in the center of the room, two figures spill into the room. The man from the video feed room, and an unfamiliar woman with auburn hair swept into a high ponytail, both dressed in the same black uniform. Both the man and the woman hold batons. The batons arc and crackle with the promise of pain. The man charges, baton held over his head. I freeze, not knowing what to do or how to defend myself. Retreating to a place curiously separate from myself, I watch as the man swings the baton in a downward arc. I try to brace myself, to duck, to wrap my arms around my head to cushion the crushing blow. Instead, my body takes over and I sidestep under the man's raised arms, delivering three sharp jabs to his kidney. The man drops, mouth open in pain and surprise. The baton drops too, clattering to the floor. I swoop down to pick it up, and as I press it into the man's heaving back, I send an impression into the baton. Go to sleep. 
Electricity surges and the man writhes before going limp. The woman attempts to circle me, more wary than her partner, more cautious. She strikes, but again I duck, and her baton slices through empty air. At the same time, I grab her outstretched wrist and jerk her off balance. I drive my baton into her stomach, and she doubles over, arms clutching at her middle. Holding her in place, I rain blow after savage blow across the flat of her back and shoulders until finally she crumples. The woman makes a small noise as I prod the back of her exposed neck with the tip of my baton, and her hand grasps for my ankle, a plea for mercy. I step out of her reach and send electricity dancing through her. I watch from that same dispassionate place as she convulses, her body racked with spasms. At last, she falls still, sprawling across the carpet like so much refuse. I stoop to retrieve her baton. It snaps in my hands as easily as dry tender, and I throw the two halves across the room. I look at the remaining baton, contemplating whether the current could overload the blast doors. When the translucent panels making up the cage in the center of the room powers on. An image blooms from the depths of the screen. A petite woman with long dark hair, staring at the baton in her hands. Video feed from a camera hidden in the dark depths of the ceiling. The doctor is watching me through that camera, I'm certain. Waiting to see what I will do next. Collecting data for her files. Safe behind her desk, biding time until help arrives. How many men and women in black uniforms will they send? Will they drag me straight to the lab? Or will they bind me to the table in my cell while the doctor devises a suitable punishment? What will she take from me this time? Like the curling wick of a candle drowned in its own wax, my rage is snuffed out, my fury extinguished. Exhaustion hits me fast and hard, and I stagger under its sudden weight. The baton slips from my grasp, and I let it fall. I turn away from the video to face the doctor behind her door, my vision blurring with moisture. Unnerved, I touch my fingers to my face where it has bubbled over, running in shallow rivers over the swell of my cheeks. Tears. Why? I ask the smooth facade of the blast door. As always, my voice is garbled, distorted, incoherent, but the words force their way past the cage of my teeth, like fresh green shoots bursting through charred undergrowth. Why did you do this to me? They were dead. They were all dead. I just wanted... The words stick, unwieldy on a tongue stiff with disuse, but I continue, purging them like malware from my system. Why couldn't you... Why couldn't you just let me die? All at once, I know. My name is Nora. I am, I was, a wife, a mother. 
I had three beautiful children. I was traveling with a group of childhood friends, reunited for the first time in many years. Driving cross-country over long highways through forests and fields, over mountains, across the desert. A meandering road trip from the beaches of one coast to the shores of the next. It was still early morning when we stopped to stretch our legs, pulling into the lot of an obvious tourist trap, a wax museum. I was hesitant to go in at first. Wax figures? Really? But after some gentle ribbing, I followed the rest of the group inside. That's when I got the call. My parents were distraught when they told me. Beyond distraught. It's a miracle they held themselves together long enough to get the words out. There had been a fire. At my home. The suppression system had malfunctioned. The alarms never sounded, and the firefighters were never called. By the time the neighbors woke in the dead of night, to the acrid smell of smoke and a sky painted orange by towering flames... It was too late. They found the crumbling remains of my family huddled together, dead long before they could have hoped for rescue. I spent the next six months in a gray haze. I dragged myself from therapist to therapist, from support group to support group, but nothing could penetrate the thick fog of agony that enveloped me. Nothing except the certainty that I would see my family again. Nothing except my determination to make it happen. On my terms. I'd heard the rumors about the changes to the organ donor registry, but I thought they were just that. Rumors. I never expected my body to be claimed by some multinational conglomerate. I certainly never expected to wake up Zero Alpha, an android first of its kind. I close my eyes as a wave of grief washes over me, dragging me down, pulling me under. I let myself sink into its familiar depths, too tired to fight it, too tired to fight anything anymore. It's time to put an end to this experiment. It's time for me to see my family again. I open my eyes and turn, watching myself on the video feed as I approach the cage. I place my hand on the screen. Show me. A series of line drawings replace the video, blown out schematics of the inner workings of my body. The files shuffle across the screen until they settle on a drawing of my chest. I recognize the assembly resetting at my center, nestled behind a cage of surgical steel instead of bone, from one of the doctor's tests, the complicated electronic component. I know what to do. I turn to face the blast door, walking towards it with my arms outstretched, like a sinner in supplication. With an ugly smile, I tear the fabric of my sleep uniform, exposing my bare chest. I claw at my skin and a vicious, sickly sweet-smelling purple fluid spills over my hands. Grinning wider, even as tears stream down my face, 
I stare at the blast door and bury my fingers inside myself. Blind to the pain, I pull, ripping, rending, wrenching at synthetic skin, muscle, and sinew until it hangs from me like ribbons. Like party decorations, I think. A laugh bubbles out of me. My hand ducks beneath the steel cage of my ribs to reach the component, the mechanical heart that replaced the beating, bleeding, broken muscle inside my chest. The angle is awkward, but I wrap my fingers around it, holding it in the cradle of my palm. I close my fist around it, crushing the component beyond repair. Error messages flash across my vision. I stagger backward, tripping over the unconscious body of the man in black. My arms wheel, desperate for purchase, but my hands find nothing but empty air. I crash to the floor and, mindless with pain and fear, drag myself across the carpet, my fingers slick, stained a deep purple. Finally, I come to a stop, the edges of my vision fading. I close my eyes, waiting for the end when, with a sharp pain in my side, the world shifts around me until I am no longer lying on my front. Above me stands the doctor. Her expression holds not fear, not anger, but annoyance. She leans over me, her hands on her hips like a parent scolding an unruly toddler. Her mouth moves, but her voice is lost in the deep rumble of the void as it rushes up to meet me. I wake, lying on a cold steel table. A hole exists where my memory should be. Or, not a hole, but a great, yawning chasm. Thank you again for joining us for episode 1104 of The Wicked Library. Again, today's author was Barbara Jean Savoie, and the story was Zero Alpha, performed by Sarah Ruth Thomas. To find out more about today's author and voice actor, please visit thewickedlibrary.com and check out their bio pages. I'm Graham Rowett, and you can find me on Twitter at GrahamNY and on Instagram at GROWAT. One thing I'd like to promote is if you're looking for more audio horror, I hope you'll check out the Grey Rooms podcast. Sci-Fi.com calls the show a cross between Quantum Leap and Tales from the Crypt. They launch their fourth season November 26th. Lead editor for the Wicked Library and executive producer is Scarlett R. Algy. Our resident composer and executive producer is Nico Vitese of We Talk of Dreams. Artwork for today's episode was created by Jeanette Andromeda, our art director and executive producer. Our showrunner and producer is Daniel Foytik. The Wicked Library is created by Ninth Story Studios. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening.